And this is coming from a book that God, I believe, led me to start writing 10 years ago uh, before we ever dreamed there'd be a spirit chapel. But I felt God was kind of telling me to put my beliefs about him in writing. And I didn't know why, but now I do. I think we need to be able to go through it so you can understand what this church teaches. Again, this doesn't mean you all have to believe this. You don't have to agree with everything I say. Um, but I want you to know what the church believes and, and, and what we believe about God. So we went through uh, a three-part series on the Bible because the, if you looked at the book, the very first chapter says there has to be two ground rules that we agree on or none of this is going to make sense. And the first ground rule is the Bible's the word of God. If you don't believe that, then we really can't have a conversation because from now on, I'm going to be using the Bible to back up what I say. And if the Bible doesn't mean anything to you, you know, it's like me saying, well, I have this belief, you know, you know my theology based on the Harry Potter books. And, you know, I keep quoting from Harry Potter. You don't care, right? It was like, what? That's weird. And if you don't believe the Bible's the inspired word of God, me quoting from it's not going to help. So I hope after three weeks, at least you understand why we believe uh, and why we teach the, the, word is, uh, the inspired word of God is the Bible. And so the second part that we have to understand coming into this, or nothing else is going to make sense, is it's always personal. My walk with the Lord is not going to be your walk with the Lord. And that's true of me, and that's true of everybody else you can look at. And we have a tendency in the Christian world to want everybody to act, talk, dress and do the same things. There's this homogenous nature of Christianity where Christians start hanging out each, with each other for a while and they all start sounding alike. They all start kind of look alike. And um, this is absolutely not biblical. If you look at Jesus, he never tries to make his disciples the same. He doesn't say, Peter, I need you to stop acting out. I need you to act more like, you know, James. Uh, he never does that. He allows the disciples to be who they are. He does not want us to be the same. But he's going to have a journey with you that's different than my journey. He's going to take things about you and things that are happening in your life. He's going to take those and he's going to use those to make you a better version of yourself. God prepares us in ways we do not understand in order to get us ready for things we can never dream. Believe me, I never thought uh, I would ever be a pastor. Uh, in fact, you know the story. I told Victoria on two separate occasions when she asked, no, I'm not going to be a pastor. Why would I do such a crazy thing as that? So God will sometimes prepare us. And because he was preparing me for what I'm doing now, uh, and, and maybe even different things I don't know about yet, he's going to treat me differently about some things. There are some things I don't get away with that maybe some of you will. Uh, lucky you. And, and that's because you know, he needs, you know, I'm going to be held to a higher standard. The Bible tells us that. And so we have to understand that as we go through our lives, sometimes we look to our people around us and we say, well, why, why don't I get that? You know? And it, it, you can't. You can't look left. You can't look right. And we have to also understand that as we go through this experience as a church together, we're not really sharing the experience because it's going to be different. Best way I can describe that is when I was four years old, I grew up on a farm. And my father at the time was a full-time pastor in Mount Vernon Church. My mother was a full-time pastor at McKeesport Hospital. I'm a pop. She's a nurse there. She wasn't a pastor. My, my mother was a full-time nurse at McKeesport Hospital. And um, so they worked full-time. My brothers were both in school. And little Marky, which was me, uh, had needed somebody to watch him. In those days, we didn't have child care. We had friends and we had family. That's what you had. And so we had a woman in our church. Her name is Dorothy Rankin. She played the organ 
uh, from Mount Vernon Church, and she and her husband had a farm over on a broad lawn, Rankin Farm, and she said, I can watch little Marky. And so my mother on the way to the McKeesport Hospital would swing by the farm and drop me off, and she would watch me all day until, you know, one of them got off in the evening, and I loved it. I mean, I just can't imagine a better place for a kid to grow up. I mean, I, I just really loved it. Now, it was a working farm, so it wasn't like Dorothy had a bunch of time to spend with me. Usually, we'd start off by doing the chores together, the chores I could help with, like gathering the eggs from the chickens, which scared me to death. Those chickens scared me, and that cracked Dorothy up. You know, you ain't supposed to be scared of chickens. They're supposed to be scared of you, but they flapped, and I jumped, you know. Uh, and then we would take those eggs down into this basement, and they had this light in this little cage, and you put the eggs in there one by one to see which were good eggs and which were bad eggs. Those of you who are nodding, you know what I'm talking about. If you ever have a vegetarian come up to you and say, you're eating baby birds. No, you're not. The <laughs> eggs you're eating would never be a baby bird. Chicken could sit on it all day long. It would never hatch. It was, it's, 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 I knew that at age four. But after that, there really wasn't a whole lot more I could do with Dorothy, though, because they started getting into you know, other things, machinery and things. And so I was basically left on my own. They had a shepherd mix named Skippy that would follow me around and, you know, 35 acres of land to discover, and, and off we go. And I just had the greatest time. Can't imagine a bet. I still remember some memories from, from, from my time on, on Dorothy's farm. But after I got old enough, I couldn't go there anymore. They would uh, send me off uh, to school. And about that time, uh, about that time, my brother Ted, who's four years younger than I am, uh, got old enough, so he went to Dorothy's farm. Now, we come from basically the same DNA pool, my brother and I, and yet my mother, one night when she was, you know, sitting there and praying with Ted at night, saying their nighttime prayers together, uh, they, they uh, were praying, and, and she's, okay, now, Ted, you say, Teddy, you say your thing, and, and Ted said this. He said, uh, oh, Lord, please help me be a good boy so Mom doesn't have to take me to Dorothy's farm. Now you can imagine what that did to my mom's heart. You know, I'm not punishing you if I take you. And it never occurred to her, you know. And for whatever reason, he just saw this as punishment. And that doesn't make me a better person than my brother Ted. If they'd sent us to math camp, you know, I would have thought I was in the third ring of hell, and he would have loved it. But it's just we're different, you know. We, even though we grew up in the same house and, and we, we have the same experiences kind of things, uh, we're just different. And I'm going to have to stop for just a second. Are we not broadcasting? Okay. All right. All right. Well, they're missing a great sermon. Good thing we put the one up last night. Uh, I had a feeling on that. I don't know why. But okay. Anyway, so uh, even though we share events, I don't know that we really fully share experiences. You know, I, I think that at some level we, we have difficulties with that because, uh, you know, we come at things differently. And that's certainly going to be true of your Christianity. We could all go through the same experience, you know, we could all go to the same event. We could all sit here and listen to the same sermon. Some people are going to like it. Some people are going to hate it. We're going to have a different experience there. Um, and that frustrates sometimes a pastor because, you know, I'm watching. I can see sometimes the sermon's hitting over here or over there. I mean, not there, and I don't know why, you know. But at some level, I, I just think there's too many variables that we can possibly know. And I think sometimes that is what God wants. God wants us to have an individual walk with him. We're different people. He doesn't want us to be the same. So there's no way we can all have the same experience. We're going to have a different experience. Now, one quick thing here. This is not saying that you should justify all your sin. 
that way. Well, you know what? I just have this porn addiction, but that's God and me. Don't worry about it. No, I'm, I'm not saying to justify your sin. What I am saying is that as you go through life, you're going to find out that sometimes Christians around you just seem to be doing something differently than you, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're better. It just means they're off doing their thing with God, and you're not there. You're somewhere else, and that's perfectly, perfectly natural. We have to be careful looking left and right and try to use that to determine how we're doing as Christians. We have to be very, very careful because when we do that in the Bible, it tells us many, many times, do not do that. And when we do that, it always ends up in problems. It doesn't matter who you are. I'm going to start by telling you a story about a rock star in the Bible, a guy named uh, Elijah. Now, Elijah is one of the greatest figures in the Bible. And um, I'm saying that because he has a couple really some things that are pretty amazing, but one of the amazing things is when Jesus Christ walked on the earth and uh, he, he decided he was going to have a little conference, you know, his little go-to-meeting uh, with heaven, he called down Elijah and Moses. So if you think about it, Jesus Christ, Elijah, and Moses had a conversation. That's a pretty tight group right there, those three. And so Elijah's just this rock star, and yet he has a moment in the Bible that is pretty hard to understand where he just really does not uh, keep his faith. He loses his faith, and he loses his faith because he takes his eye off God and looks left and looks right. So here's this story. I, I preached on this when we did the Elijah series, but real quick setup. What's happened is he's just had the greatest moment a prophet ever has in the entire Bible. He's just had a showdown on a place called Mount Carmel where he stood against 500 false prophets from false gods, and they put up two altars, he says, here's, here's the test. You know, let's just see whose God's real. Um, you pray that your God lights yours on fire by, by himself. We're not going to light the fire. We're going to set the altar. And I'll pray my God does. The one that brings down the fire, that's the real God. And so after about four hours of trying, the 500 false prophets get nothing. And then Elijah says, oh, this is too easy for my God. They dump water all over his. And then he says, God, show me who's God. And boom, fire falls from heaven. Everything ignites, you know, like it was <laughs> covered in gasoline, a boom. And when it happens, this is the best part, he's surrounded at the time by people who want to kill him. They've been, for years, they've been trying to find him and kill him because he prayed for a drought to come on Israel and it was, the prayer was answered. Everybody wanted to kill him. He's surrounded by 500 prophets, all who have weapons. He's got the entire army of the king there. They've been looking for him for years. The king is there. He's had a death warrant on this guy for years. And all of Israel's mad at him too. So he walks into this place. He doesn't have a soul, a friend in the world except God and his faith. And he stands up against them. And when this happens, it's like this veil is lifted from everybody's eyes. And they go, wait a minute. That's a false God. This is the real God. And so they, they just, like, as one, they go and, they, and, and, and they, grab, they grab all the false prophets and they pull them over the hill and they kill them all. They kill, they kill all, all the 500 of the false prophets. So that's what's just happened. At this moment now, Elijah thinks, this is great. This is where we need to be. Uh, now I have one thing left, and that is the queen who started this whole thing needs to repent. She's not there. Everybody else is there, but the queen's not there. And so uh, he says, now we just go get the queen. We'll show her what happened to the false prophets. Everybody will tell her about this great moment. And that's it. Everybody's going to be brought to repentance. Uh, so the king gets his chariot and goes back to the queen. Uh, and Elijah is so jacked up on the spirit, he runs. And he outruns the entire chariot. 
and gets there before everybody, but you can't just walk into the throne room. You have to wait. So he goes to the side room, cleans up, gets all the dust off him. And then Ahab, the king, goes, and he tells the queen, whose name is Jezebel, everything that happened. And she listens to it, and Elijah's waiting for the note to be sent that says, oh, hey, guess what? Um, you know, you need to come back. We need to have a conversation about your God, who's clearly the God. He's waiting for this invitation to come and, and talk to them. And instead, this happens. So Ahab tells all that Elijah done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I swear to God, tomorrow you'll be dead. Now, you would think that Elijah at this point would shrug it off. I mean, he just stared down 500 false prophets with weapons, the entire army, the entire village there, and they all wanted to kill him, and he walked right in the middle of them as though nothing bothered him. You would think this guy, to have Jezebel say, I'm going to kill you before this time tomorrow. He'd go, give it a try, lady. You know, did you not see what God did? Do you not see his fire? Did you not hear this story? Go ahead. Give me your best shot. I'm not worried. Instead, Elijah turns and runs for his life. He runs. He takes off and he's running. His, his poor servants try and keep up with him. And after like a day of running, the servant's like out. And so he says, you stay here. And he keeps going another two days in the wilderness. And when he finally gets there, he falls down exhausted and he prays the pastor's prayer. Every pastor at some time has prayed this prayer. This is it. Oh God, kill me now. Just, just kill me now. And he's saying it because he's like, I don't want her to have the satisfaction. In fact, this is what the scripture says. He was afraid. He rose and ran for his life. And he himself went a day's journey. That's after he drops off his servant into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Now watch why. For I am no better than my father's. What's he saying? Well, before he had this showdown, there were 500 prophets of Israel that Jezebel had killed over a period of a couple months. She was trying to wipe out Judaism from Israel, and she's trying to replace it with her religion. And she was taking over the temples and just killing everybody inside. Now, in those days, you didn't go to school to be a prophet. You were a prophet because the family was a prophet. So when we say 500 prophets were killed, they were probably all relatives in some way, shape, or form of Elijah. They're part of the same basic tribe. And so what he's saying is, every one of my forefathers and kin failed to convert this woman, and guess what? I failed too. And she killed every one of them, and now she's going to kill me too. That's what he's saying. He's saying, just like, just like she killed them, she's going to kill me. And he loses his faith entirely and runs for his life. It wasn't the competition that killed Elijah's faith, right? It wasn't the competition of the army. and the, That didn't kill his faith. It was a comparison that killed his faith. It wasn't until he started looking at the people around him that had already been killed and thought, well, I'm just going to be like them. You know, well, I, I thought I, I had a way through this. I thought I had a way I could, I could change the heart of that woman, but I can't either. I want to be just like them. She's, a, she's just, uh, she, she's, she can't repent. Some people are just truly evil. They can't, they don't care. She doesn't care whose God's real. What she cares about, she can control this God. I don't care if he's real. I'm going to kill you and then there'll be nobody left. And he's completely believing that he's done. 
not because of the competition, but because of comparison. It did not matter at all whether or not he was better than his father's or worse than his father's. What matters is what God's plan was, and he forgot that somewhere. In fact, in Proverbs, Proverbs says it this way, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. I love to ponder the path of your feet. It's like, <laughs> like stare at your feet and watch where you're going, right? Let your path be established. That's by God. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to look directly ahead. I want you to look at the path God is taking you on. Don't turn to the right nor to the left. Keep your feet from evil. He's saying, if you go left or if you go right, you're going to be going to evil. You're going to be following after something you should be following after. He said, what I need is for you to stay right ahead and just keep looking at me because Elijah's success or failure did not depend on whether he was better than his family. It depended on the quality of his walk with the Lord. That's all that mattered. Now, just so you know how this story ends, because I don't think we ever even got to there, um, eventually, uh, what, what it basically happens is Elijah's tendering his resignation to God. God, I'm done. I can't do this. I quit. God says, resignation not accepted, but I'll let you retire after you train your replacement. So he goes and gets this guy named Elisha, and he trains him as a replacement. And before Elijah leaves, before he's done, before God finally accepts his resignation, lets him stop being his prophet, he gets to go one more time, and he prophesies to Jezebel, here's how you're going to die, and it's not going to be pretty. You're going to die, you're going to die, and the dog's going to eat you. No one's even going to bury your body. The dog's going to eat your body. Of course, no one believes him. You know, she's, I, they can't kill him because they've tried for years. And so from there he goes, and eventually uh, he'll, he'll, he'll finish out his life. Now, here's how the lives end, just so you know. Um, Jezebel is betrayed by the people she trusts. They throw her out a window of an upper parapet where she crashes to the, the brick uh, ground beneath them. And dogs come and eat her, exactly as Elijah prophesied. You know how Elijah dies? He doesn't. Elijah's one of the two people in the Bible who never die. Elijah goes with his protege, and he crosses the Jordan River, and God sends a chariot down. Talk about Uber. <laughs> sends his chariot down, right? And, and it takes him up in a whirlwind. Elijah never dies. Now, if you rewound this back to when she says, I'm going to kill you in 24 hours, it certainly looks like she's empowering and Elijah's going to die. But God had a different plan, not because Elijah was better than his father's, but because he had a plan for Elijah that didn't include Jezebel killing him. What matters is the walk. The walk is personal. We need to always keep things personal. But here's what we do. We look at the people left and right, and we kind of judge ourselves based on that. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that whole family there. That person's maybe a little bit better than me, but they're a little bit ahead of me. In the cr- I'm, uh, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm, I'm doing okay. Looking left and right, comparing myself, I'm okay. Eh, maybe I need to work on this. I'm going to get better there. But, but here's something that maybe some of you math whizzes know. If you use those around you as a guideline to how you're doing, you become average. This is literally the definition of average, folks. If you're like everybody else, guess what? You're average. God doesn't want you to be average. He wants you to be exceptional. The devil wants you to be average. Do you know why the devil wants you to be average? This may come as a hard shock, but the truth is the average person is going to hell. 
The average person is going for help. I know some of us are C students and that. I'm like, wait, what? The average person is going to hell. I have a scripture on that. Jesus says this. He says in Matthew 7, look, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find that. What's Jesus saying? The average person's going that way. I want you to go this way. It may not be easier, but this way leads to life. That way leads to death. Do you want to be average or do you want to be exceptional? Jesus is saying, I need to keep things personal with you. You need to stop looking at them and following the crowd. You need to stay with me, and you need to know that I'm going to lead you where you need to be. I want to make you the best version of you possible. He's not trying to turn you into something else. He wants you to be the best person possible. In Deuteronomy, they put it like this. You need to be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God's commanded. You shall not turn aside to the right hand nor to the left. Let me put this another way. Thou shalt not use Facebook to determine God's love for you. This is like one of the most evil things going right now is that you know, people look at Facebook and say, well, wait a minute. That person went on vacation again? Are you kidding me? They're always on vacation. I look at every time I look, they're eating these great meals. What's going on with this? I, I don't get any of this stuff. God, you must not love me as much as you they, they claim to be a Christian. I know they're not even very good Christian. And why do you keep blessing like this? We're looking at the, the people left and right of us to try to determine how our relationship's going with God. It doesn't work that way. And by the way, you guys know that like almost all Facebook's lies, right? I mean, you guys do have figured that out by now. I, I had this person on my Facebook feed, this is true, a uh, young couple. And I was looking at their Facebook feed once, and I was kind of scrolling through these pictures. were gorgeous. It's like, these are just amazing pictures, you know? This happy couple, they're always laughing and smiling and like, man, look at this. And I know them, you know? I'm like, how could they be having this blessed life? You know, God's just blessing everything they do. And I'm like, I just don't understand because I know kind of some of the backstory there. And I'm going through it. I'm looking. I said, I, I don't get it, God. I don't understand why they get this life. And I stopped in this one picture because it was just such a great shot. Uh, they're playing, like they're sitting on the edge of the bed in, in the bedroom, and they're playing some kind of a board game that's on the bed. And I don't know what it is, maybe backgammon or something. And he lo- looks like he's holding like dice in his hand or something. And, and he's like got this puzzled look on his face, and she's cracking up, you know, like, like some horrible role he just made or something. And she's laughing. And it's like this great moment captured in their marriage, you know, because you could see they're just a fun couple, and they're having fun together and laughing, enjoying themselves. I'm like, man, look at that. And then all of a sudden the thought hit me, who took this picture? They don't have anybody living with them. They, they live alone. They don't have kids or anything. And I'm like, wait a minute. How do you get that picture? They're sitting in bed playing, but the bed's made. In fact, the room's pristine. It's perfectly clean, you know. Wait, she's wearing makeup. And I start looking at it more carefully. I thought, that's not even their bedroom. This is a set. This is, there, there's some photographer talk, took this picture. You can't get this picture with a timer. This is a perfectly posed picture. And then I start looking back through the other pictures I was looking at. These are all posed. This whole thing is just marketing, you know, to talk about how great their life is. And they're actually, they actually sell stuff. But like, oh, and I fell for it. I can't believe I almost fell for this. Their life is fake. And so much of this stuff on Facebook is just Fake. There's like there's two kinds of people on Facebook. One who do this, they use this marketing campaign, let you think their life's better than yours. And the other one's the one just wants attention. You know, oh my life sucks today. And they're like, oh, what's wrong? You know, that's like that's like that's it. And then there's people who post pictures of their dog. But other than that, 
other than that, uh, we, have to, we, have to start, we have to start realizing we need to focus on what God wants to take us to. And we have to follow him. And it doesn't matter. Even if all that's true, it doesn't matter. What matters isn't where we are here, what, where we're heading. And God wants to teach you something. And he might have to take you through a hard place in order to teach you something. Or you might have done something stupid that takes yourself through a hard place, and he'll use that to teach you. Either way, he's going to pull you out of it. He's not necessarily going to deliver you. You know, the old, the old saying, God will never protect you from what he wants to perfect you through. If he's got an opportunity to perfect your spirit and perfect your faith, he's going to use that, and you have to know that's going to happen. And in Philippians, Paul says something really interesting. He says, look, my dear friends, you've always obeyed God. You obeyed while I was with you, and you've obeyed even more while I'm not with you. So continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What a phrase. With fear and trembling. You keep working out your salvation with the Lord, and yeah, sometimes you wonder if you're doing it right. You got that little element of fear. You should, he says. You should tremble a little bit sometimes when you realize that you're working with the Almighty God to make you better. How are you doing with that? He says, but keep working on it. Keep working it. He says, you're obeying God. It's okay. But you need to keep working on your own salvation. Stop worrying about theirs. You can't do anything about their salvation. You can only do something about yours. So we, we see that. And, and so we, we have this other, you know, I have another scripture I want to show you. But before, let me, let me show you, let me tell you a story about when I first saw this scripture for the first time. I really saw it. I was younger. I was about 21, I guess, when I left the house. My mother and I got in a fight and I left. And I got an apartment up in North for sales, one bedroom apartment. And uh, I was there and I was never going back home because my pride wouldn't let me. I would just never, every one of my brothers came back home at some point, but I never did. My pride wouldn't let me. Uh, I was in a computer business and I was just a geek kind of, and I, what I do is I go around to different businesses and I talk to them and I would just basically help them. They, everybody wanted to buy a computer, but no one knew what to do with it once they bought it. That was early days of computers. And so I kind of made a living just going around these small businesses, helping them buy a computer, which, you know, I would buy for them and sell a slight profit. And then I'd set it up for them in the way they wanted and they'd pay me to do that. It wasn't um, a huge amount of money, but I made a living at it. I sold Tom Clark his, his, his first computer system back when he was just a used car salesman. But I kind of went around and did that. And I would talk to some people, and they'd re refer me to other people, but I didn't have any kind of a plan. I had no business strategy at all. I was just out there doing this, this some dumb kid, you know, but I didn't need much money to live on, so it was okay. And then once I made a sale, uh, I would just sit and do nothing uh, as far as business-wise. I'd stay at home and do stuff. Uh, until my money ran out, and then I go out to get another one. That's a really bad business model, but that was what I was doing. So I was, I was in this house, and at that time, I actually started reading a lot of stuff. I read some A.W. Tozer, some C.S. Lewis. You know, I was studying the Bible, trying to figure out, because I just moved out of the house always before Christianity. It was like a hand-me-down religion for my dad, who was a preacher. And I kind of want to figure out, what do I think about all this? What do I really believe? And so I was reading some of the best-known authors of Christianity and kind of coming up with some ideas of what God must really be like and, and what I truly believed. Anyway, so this day, I was getting ready to do grocery shopping, and so I sat down with my check ledger because in those days, that's what you did. I mean, I guess as a computer guy, I guess I could have programmed it, but I didn't. I was just with a ledger, and I was figuring it out. And I was looking at my bills, and I was going through it, and I realized I had enough money in the account, if I budgeted, to make it for 22 more days, and then I was done. I had 22 days left of funds. 
Now, I had already been out and talked to a couple different people about computer systems. They seemed interested, you know, but I wasn't a sales guy, so I just was waiting for them to call me. That was my strategy, just wait for them to call. And I looked at that, and I realized in 22 days, I'm out of money. I'm broke. And I thought to myself, well, I guess God will just make one of these deals fall through or come through in the next 21 days. That's all I need. And I closed my little checkbook, and I got my keys because I was going to go shopping. I had my, my, my list of shopping things I was going to buy. I was bachelor, so it was all canned food. But I was going to go buy it so I could eat. And I went, I'll never forget, my hand hit the doorknob of my apartment in North Huntington there, and this thought hit me. Really? God didn't come through for your parents. And I'll never forget my hand like, came off it like I was shocked. Because just that week, my parents had declared bankruptcy. They had gone to an attorney. It's been kind of in the works for some time. My parents um, had invested money in McKeesport Real Estate, thinking McKeesport was going to come back. We all know how that turned out. Um, and they lost everything, including the house that they were living in because they'd used that as collateral to buy an apartment house. And they had just given up. This, that week, they were declaring bankruptcy. And I'll never forget, because my hand came off, I thought, that's right. My parents are declaring bankruptcy. God didn't come through for them. God's letting them declare bankruptcy. My father was a pastor, and God's letting them declare bankruptcy. What makes you think he's going to come through for you when he lets your parents fall all the way to the bottom? And I'll never forget that moment because that was the first time since I moved out of the house that fear entered into my life. I felt that fear for the first time. Like, wait a minute, what if God doesn't come through? I don't have a plan B. There's nothing I have to fall back on. I'll have to go home in humiliation, but I don't even know if they'll take me because they're getting ready to lose that home. I've got nothing. I have no safety net at all. And I looked at my, my shopping list. I realized I need some of this stuff, but some of that stuff came off that shopping list, right? Dinty Moore stew went. It was replaced by ramen noodles. You know, it's like I got to save some money somewhere. Those of you who've lived on Dinty Moore and ramen noodles know what I'm talking about. Dinty Moore might not be great, but it's better than ramen noodles, but I couldn't, I couldn't afford much, you know? And so I went shopping, but I'm, I'll never forget that fear that was just in me the whole time. I couldn't get my mind off of this. What if God doesn't come through? What if I'm broke? What happens then? You know, I've, I've never known anybody who hit rock bottom like that. And so I did that. Now, at that time in my life, because of something I'd read from C.S. Lewis, every evening I had a prayer meeting with God on my knees. I literally got on my knees next to my bed and I prayed. And so I knew that that evening when I did that, I was going to pray and I was going to ask God what's going on, right? Um, it's like I had an appointment with God. And it never occurred to me I could go to him any time. I don't know why it never occurred to me. So I lived in fear that whole night. I mean, the whole evening leading up to bedtime. I just was really, I tried to put it off. I tried to watch TV. I couldn't get, you know, it just, some of you know what I'm talking about. You have that thing in the back of your mind that just nags at you. You won't let you go. And just keeps nagging, nagging, nagging. And you want to put it away. You want to have five minutes where you can laugh and forget it. But you never seem to really make it. It keeps coming back. Because it's really just this fear that's just grabbed you, you know. And that's where I was. And so finally I got to the point where I was going to, you know, pray and so I went into my room and I kneeled and I started praying I tried to do the right prayer you know praying for other people but it wasn't working so finally I said God I gotta ask what's going on why didn't you come through for my parents how do I know you'll come through for me how can I trust that how can I trust that and I didn't get any answer I wish God spoken to me but nothing happened now after that was all done uh, I thought well I didn't do my Bible study today Maybe I need to go ahead and do that now. So I went, I got my Bible and opened it up. And that's the first time that I really remember reading what I'm about to show you here. It's in the book of John. It's at the very end. Now what's happened is Jesus has been 
crucified and risen again from the dead. He comes back to visit with his disciples. They have a fish fry. And uh, he takes Peter away from the crowd because Peter denied him three times. And so he's going to give Peter a chance to renew his faith three times because God's cool like that. And he's telling him, you know, he's accepting him back so he knows, Peter knows he's totally forgiven. And, and Jesus is telling him, you're, you're still my rock. I'm still building the church on you. And uh, so then this happens. And so Jesus says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, this is Jesus speaking prophetically to Peter, but what he's telling him is he's going to be crucified for the kingdom. Someone else is going to dress him and spread his hands where he doesn't want to go, and they're going to put him on a cross. Now, legend has it, not biblical, but legend has it that when that happens to Peter, he says, I'm not fit to die the way my Lord died, so they crucify him upside down. That's the legend. I don't know if it's true, but that's, that's what uh, the legend is. So Peter will be martyred for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus is telling him right here, you're, you know, you're back, but you need to know how this is going to end. He's being honest with him. I need you to be my rock. I need you to, you know, to help found the church, but this is how it's going to finally end. And so uh, that's a lot to digest if you're Peter. You know, he's kind of walking, and he's seen Jesus crucified, so he knows this is no idle threat. And so... Um, and John's actually writing this. He says he did this to indicate the kind of death he was going to have. And then look at this. He set, turns to Peter and he says, follow me. And you'll notice the exclamation point there. That's because in the Greek, this is a, this is a, this is a command. This is an imper- what they call an imperative command. Jesus turns to Peter and says, you follow me. Whatever else happens, you need to follow me. This is what's, where you're going to lead to, but you're going to follow me. And and, and what happens next is interesting because if you don't understand the relationship of the disciples, you might misunderstand what happens next. Because what happens, he turns and he sees John's following them from a distance, which is how John knew all this, by the way. He was eavesdropping. That's how he knew what happened. And he looks at him. He says, Lord, what about him? Now, Peter's not saying, well, if I'm going to die, is he going to die? What he's saying is, he's not going to die, is he? Because John was a kid. He's probably about 15 years old, 14, 15 years old. And all the disciples kind of looked at him like he was you know, the, their kid brother. And uh, they kind of looked after him. And so he was the youngest of all of them. And Peter looks at him and says, Look, I understand. I can handle it. But what about him? He's just a boy. What about him? Is he going to have to endure this too? You know, P- Peter's actually concerned for John. He isn't saying, well, you want to kill him too. He, he's, he's saying, you know, I'm concerned. He's just a kid. Is that? And Jesus answers this way. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You care. Why are you asking me that? You follow me. It doesn't matter what's going to happen with John, Peter. I'm trying to tell you so you can be focused on your mission. John's mission is his mission. I I might let him lift, I come back. Who who knows? That doesn't affect anything I'm telling you. And he said, I need you to stay focused, and I need you to follow me. And then John, it says, because of this, a lot of people thought Jesus said he would never die. And he never did say that, and John's clarifying that. Now, John will be the last disciple alive. Uh, he's the only disciple who doesn't get martyred. He actually lives a, a long life, and he takes care of Jesus' mother uh, before he dies as well, before she dies. So, uh, you know, Jesus was basically telling Peter, though, I, I need you to stop looking at that. I don't care. It doesn't matter what's happening there. What matters is what we're talking about here. Why? I'm right here in front of you, Peter. I'm trying to talk to you about things you need to know. And you want to worry about somebody else? Focus, man, focus. Focus on me. And when I read that, I'll never forget because I put the Bible down. And what you're telling me, God, 
And he like finished the sentence in my head. What happened to your parents doesn't matter to you. It means nothing what happened to your parents. What matters is, are you going to follow me? Are you going to trust me or not? You, you have no idea what's going on over there. You follow me. Can you do that? And I mean, the fear just went away. Because I actually believed that God was speaking through my own lips when I said, well, God, I just have to bring something in the next 20 days. Like he was actually speaking to my heart, and that's why it came out of my mouth. He was already telling me, I got this. I've got you. Because he was trying to teach me a very, very important principle called Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And he needed me to learn that. And this was a lesson he would repeat throughout my life because I'm a slow learner. Jehovah Jireh, I got this. I got this. And don't you worry about left or right. You focus on us. I've got this. And by the way, something came through. But all this that I'm telling you doesn't necessarily mean it will for you. This was my journey with the Lord. And I'm telling you that God wanted to teach me something really, really important. He wanted to make sure I got it. So he brought this in a very, very stark contrast so I wouldn't miss it. He said, I need you to understand it's about us. And I would forget many times. It's always about you and the Lord. It's always. It's not about me and the Lord. It's about you and the Lord. I tell you stories about my life to encourage you and exhort you and to tell you lessons I've learned. But I understand God's taking you on a different journey than he's taking me. You're going to have a different journey. You know, maybe you'll never have a situation where 20 days from now you're broke. I hope none of you. That's a horrible feeling. But God's taking you on a journey, and it's personal. And we have to understand that because as we talk to other people, we see other Christians, they're on their personal journey. Even if everything they tell you is true, they're on their personal journey. You follow Jesus. And the way you do that isn't to look left and right. It's to keep looking ahead. One more prescription and we'll be done. Uh, this is right after Jesus sends out the 12 and they come back. Uh, and so they're telling them all the great things that happened. And Jesus said, like, yeah, this is good. The apostles gathered together Jesus, reported them all they had done. And he said, great. Now come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. Because usually where we're on the spiritual high is where we're most vulnerable and we don't know it. That's what happened to Elijah. He was exhausted physically, spiritually, and emotionally and didn't even know it. He said, what you need to do now, you spend spending time with other people. Now you need to come away and you need to spend time with me. Let's all get away. And that's it. There were so many people coming and going, they couldn't even have time to eat. This like bothers my wife a lot when people don't get time to eat. It's like, you've got to feed people. He says, you can't, you can't even eat. You've got to go away. And so they all went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. This is when God speaks to you. Be still and know that I am the Lord, he says. Jesus, he says, get up and go away to a secluded place. He would work with people and deal with people, but he didn't use people at all to ever impact his relationship with his father. That was personal. And that's what he's telling his disciples. You just did a great thing. That's great. This ministry you've started is wonderful, but now you need to get off alone with the Lord because that's what matters. All this other stuff doesn't. What matters is your walk with the Lord. It is always personal. The quality of your life is determined by the time that you spend alone with the Lord. Would you all please pray with me?